This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Voting has begun. More than one million ballots have already been cast in Michigan, and that is out of nearly three million ballot applications that have been requested and mailed out by clerks. So one out of three have been returned already, and more will be requested, you can be sure, and more will be filled out and mailed back. This will be an all-time record for mail-in voting in Michigan, and it will favor the Democrats who are organized in this endeavor, whereas the Republicans are divided and scrambling. Item number two, 14 men have been indicted, by my count, in the alleged plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer and perhaps attempt to overthrow Michigan state government. Six have been arraigned in federal court, three of whom have been denied bail, and eight faced state charges for conspiracy, planned terrorism, and illicit gang activity. Everybody listening has heard about all they need to know about this atrocity. I cannot add anything more at this point that is not already apparent. Now, item number three, when the Michigan Supreme Court invalidated every COVID-19-related executive order the governor has issued since April 30th, The legislature returned this week for a rare election year session to put into law some of the governor's former executive orders. Top on the list was continuing unemployment benefits for an expanded 26 weeks and continuing protections for employees quarantining due to COVID-19. But the Republican-led legislature also wanted COVID-19 liability protections for businesses but was concerned the governor would veto them, as she had done with prior legislation, if they were not tie-barred to the unemployment benefits. But the governor's staff and the legislative staff worked throughout the early week to find language in the immunity bill that the governor could accept, and it was done. Most legislative Democrats, but not all, ended up being a no vote on the main bills, but they passed easily anyway. Two other bills say that as long as a business has been in compliance with all federal, state, and local laws and rules, it cannot be held liable if someone believes he or she contracted COVID-19 at the work site. So people, here is what we've got. A two-track system of governance in Michigan. On the one track, We've got the governor and legislature working together, that's the way it should be, on passing a fiscal year 2021 budget three weeks ago and passing the legislation that they did this week. But then we've got another track where the governor and legislature continue to war with each other. For instance, here is a letter from House Speaker Lee Chatfield to the governor last weekend, and I'm quoting here, Governor Whitmer, we need to cooperate more. A better message needs to be sent. And now that a couple days have gone by since the plot to attack us 
both has passed, there are several points that I believe need to be made and questions that need to be asked. Why were we not in the legislature warned of the plot to take hostages at the Capitol? The plot by these terrorists was against us, too. Why weren't House sergeants warned? You knew, Governor, and we were not even given a warning. We had people working in the building every day doing essential work, and their lives matter, too. I am also alarmed that the lieutenant governor recently blamed Michigan Republicans for the evil plans of these unstable men. That accusation is inflammatory and untrue, and it does nothing to solve this problem. You chose to blame President Trump instead. The truth is, I started getting death threats. Remember, this is the Speaker of the State House of Representatives. Threats to my family at my home the day you said my legislative actions would kill people. Please realize that. But you should also know that others in the legislature have been threatened, too. They've received threats, letters, and calls to their homes. These threats have been to both Republicans and Democrats, but they aren't given security. They don't have the state resources to build million-dollar fences at their homes. And we were also targeted in these evil plots. That's why to overcome this, it will take a unified message and not political talking points or partisan finger-pointing. It will take leadership. Now, I've been critical of many of your decisions this year during COVID-19. I'll admit that. I've agreed with some decisions, too. It's important we have these debates. It makes us stronger. It ensures all voices in our state are heard. It's how our process was designed to work. But we need to do it the right way. Blanket partisan blame is wrong. It simply further divides us and causes more political strife. Hatred and violence are wrong, and that's why I've continually denounced it. And I agree. It's time to tone down the partisan rhetoric and turn the heat down, as you've said. Will you do the same for President Trump? You've arguably been his biggest critic this year in the entire country. You even fundraised this week off this planet political, which is sad. Will the lieutenant governor turn it down with the entire Republican Party, millions of whom are his constituents? This was not standing tall. It was cheap. We can do this, but we have to make this decision together. Let's get back to backing up our words with action. Please know that I am praying for the good health and constant safety of you and your family. I hope you are of mine, too. And I hope you will truly and finally allow us to work together to protect the lives and livelihoods of everyone who calls Michigan home. I'm ready. I hope you are, too. Sincerely, Lee Chatfield. Now, on this same warring track, between the governor and legislature, but on the other side of the political equation, here's what the Democrats are saying. I got an email this week from the governor saying this, Bill, it's been an interesting last few days, but one thing is clear. All roads lead back to Donald Trump. After the FBI news broke, President Trump's immediate reaction was to take to Twitter and say, I've done a terrible job. A decent human being would pick up the phone and say, Are you okay? How's your family doing? 
That's what a decent human being does. That's not what Donald Trump did. That's what Joe Biden did. And I think it tells you everything you need to know about the character of these two people. You've heard this again and again, but we are in the battle for the soul of the nation, and it's a fight we need to win. I need you to chip in $10 to defend Michigan and return decency to the White House on November 3rd. That was from Governor Whitmer. And Michigan House Democratic leader Christine Gregg, just two days after Speaker Chatfield's letter to Governor Whitmer, said this. I call for immediate action. This is a quote from Christine Gregg, state representative from Farmington Hills. Immediate action to fully implement COVID-19 life-saving measures, including a mask mandate for all members and to prohibit firearms in the Capitol building and the Anderson House office building. Last week's shocking revelation of a terrorist plot targeting Governor Whitmer in the Capitol underscores the need for urgent action on your part. Mr. Speaker, you have a duty to ensure that steps are taken to safeguard the lives of each member of the House and the hardworking legislative staff who assist us, unquote, said Representative Gregg. I mean, I could go on, but this is the rhetoric on both sides that is not helping Michigan move forward. What is helping is when they work together, which I outlined in my remarks at the very beginning. We're going to be back with a guest in a minute to talk about more of this stuff in greater depth. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us somebody who's been a very important figure in the state capitol in Lansing for three decades in and around state government, John Truscott. He is the CEO of Truscott Rossman Public Relations Firm, which he founded and which has grown exponentially in size. Uh, John Truscott, welcome to The Political Insider. Great to be with you, Bill. Well, let me just ask you, uh, so much has been going on recently, all of it, as far as I can see, pretty much bad. Few good things have happened this week in the legislature, uh, working with the governor, and they did manage to pass a budget for next year three weeks ago, which was a huge positive forward step. But everything else has been bad, uh, and it's created problems for you because you're a member of the Capital Commission, the six-member commission, uh, which has to deal with the overflow aftermath of what was revealed last week and for a lot of controversy over the last uh, six months since last spring. So let me just ask you, where do you think things are right now? Well, um, and to, to kind of set the stage, I mean, the Capital Commission was formed to preserve the Capitol, the history uh, to maintain the building, we're building uh, what's called Heritage Hall behind the Capitol building, which will be a new entrance. There will be some really great committee rooms and really important for, for us because it was a goal of ours is to provide a better educational opportunity, historical opportunity for visitors, uh, mainly school kids coming to the building. And this is a really big step forward because right now there is no educational opportunity other than just the tour. And so that's our charge. Um, 
we are not a policymaking body. We are not elected officials. Um, we're just supposed to make sure that things get painted, maintained, the floors get done, and, and we kind of pick the flowers that go out in front of the building. That's the uh, <laughs> limit of, of our authority. However, the attorney general gave an interpretation otherwise. So it did put us in a very uncomfortable position. So where things stand now, uh, at our last meeting, we were talking about weapons in the building and security and, and things like that. And we pretty much rely on state police for, for our security advice and, and then implement what, what they ask for. Um, but the legislative leadership at our last meeting had sent us a letter asking to sit down and talk about this issue. Given that they control their own space in the building, they're our major tenant uh, in the building and a very important one. Uh, we decided, um, Bill Candler, appointed by the governor, and myself, appointed by the speaker, uh, to sit down with the legislative leaders, hear them out, and work with them. And one of the things that, that they said they really wanted to do is this, we view this as their responsibility, their purview, um, and they, they're trying to work through it internally with their caucuses. And we had some very productive conversations, and I think in something being done that adds a measure of protection to the building. Well, how did the Capitol Commission ever wind up in this position of being not just a policymaking body, which you say you are not, but it's almost like people are turning to you as kind of a law enforcement mechanism. Yeah. I mean, what, what's going on in other states? I mean, does any state have a setup like this? Uh, well, I can tell you, and I don't know if they have other outside bodies that, that maintain the building. We were formed because there used to be the Capitol Committee, which was made up mainly of legislators. Um, but term limits changed the, the dynamics so much that there's no legislators really staying here on a regular basis that can help take care of the building. So they funded off to the Capitol Commission to maintain the building. And it was assumed that all the appointing authorities would appoint people who had a love for the history and for the building, which we all do. And none of us want this to be a, a political issue at all. Um, so all I can say is it was really well-intentioned legislation, but probably written a little too loosely that, that opened up for interpretation that got us to where we are. We had asked, actually, for the legislature to change that authority to tighten it up to take us back to the original intent, but it will not be done before uh, this issue needs to be addressed. Do you have any idea how many other states uh, ban weapons in their state capitals, and how do they do that? You know, I saw a list. We did a, a study. Um, it's probably a little over two-thirds of the building. It's the majority of the buildings, and they have various uh, bans, whether it just be open carry or banning all weapons, and then there are magnetometers, expert machines, things like that. So it, it, it varies. None of them have done it through an unelected, unaccountable body. It's all either been done through the legislative process, and I think there were two states that, where the governor weighed in, and it was some sort of executive directive or executive order. Well, I would imagine they probably in many of these states pass laws that were signed by the governor to put Most mechanisms in yeah. place, right? And we don't have that. Yeah, we, we don't. Um, the legislature could pass the law. There's a couple bills there right now. And, and you know, I, we, as commissioners, we're getting uh, hundreds and hundreds of emails from people, you know, asking us to support uh, the, the bills or vote for the bills. And some of the, I can't respond to uh, all of them coming in, but some of them I say, you know, we don't have a vote on this. That's the legislature's job. So, you know, please direct your, your concern to them. Um, so, I, you know, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the process and, and how it works, and I understand 
how that could happen because people are basing it on what they read. Um, and it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, we have our regular meetings. We get our construction updates, and, and um, we'll, we may vote on what type of glass we want in the heritage hall or the type of doors. Uh, we did change the entrance a little bit uh, to be more attractive, and that's really what we want to focus on. I think the commission's next meeting is next month. Is that correct? So our regularly scheduled meetings are the second Monday of every month. So the next one would be, if we hold a regular schedule, would be November 9th. We have changed those over time, and sometimes we've canceled the meetings. Um, but I, I think it's looking like this one will be held. Do you think it's likely that the commission will eventually, whether it's next month or later, more or less rubber stamp whatever agreement the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader come to, possibly with the cooperation of the governor, uh, rather than try to act independently or do something different than what the legislative leaders want? I, I can't imagine that would be the case, would it? It would certainly be our preference to go along with what the legislature wants to do. Um, they're, they're the elected office holders. Um, our commission has split on, on what to do. And, uh, you know, if we could get some guidance from those who it's their responsibility, that would be a preferred route to go. Do you think that uh, what's happened last week and then going back to last spring when there were demonstrations at the Capitol and you had open carry uh, people swarming into the Capitol with firearms and ammunition. Um, what is your view when you look back over time at the state Capitol building, the legislature and the governor of what happened in the spring and what happened last week? Uh, is it kind of like a whole new ball game? Because even back in the seventies, I remember when there were bomb threats uh, yeah. in the Capitol and the Capitol had to be vacated. Uh you know, nobody talked about a firearms ban. Well, you know, I, 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 what we saw in April, none of us on the commission liked what we saw. Um, we were, uh, we were frankly appalled that people would bring uh, weapons like that into the building and take a threatening stance. And, and now we, we have more information on that. The threat to the governor was absolutely appalling all of us. And yeah. it should be to everybody in the state. It, it's wrong. That should never happen. And uh, I'm glad that law enforcement was on top of it and acted very effectively uh, in that. Okay, so, John Truscott, we could keep talking, but unfortunately we're out of time. we got to get out. But I really appreciate it, John Truscott, for giving us an update on this. Thank you so much, John Truscott. We'll talk to you soon. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are really lucky to have on the line with us Dr. Joe Jorgensen. She is the Libertarian Party candidate nominee for President of the United States, just like Gary Johnson four years ago. Dr. Jorgensen, welcome to The Political Insider. Oh, so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I just want to ask you, how are you looking at the campaign right now and your role in it and what you're doing and your hopes for November 3rd? Well, we're just trying to get to as many people as possible to spread the message. But, you know, if we don't have to try hard to uh, sway people after they've seen the two choices they have, which really aren't a choice at all. In fact, you might have heard after the presidential debate a few weeks ago, our website slowed to a halt immediately afterwards with everybody going, oh, my gosh, is there another alternative out there? 
<laughs> well, Gary Johnson did pretty well for a Libertarian nominee four years ago. He got 3.5%, I think, nationally, and I think in Michigan as well. Uh, he was a factor in who won the presidency. Do you think you can come close to doing what Gary Johnson did four years ago? Well, it's going to be a little harder. As you know, in order to get on the debate stage, you need to get to 15 percent in the polls. So they started putting Gary in the polls early on, right from the beginning. But he got up to 13.6 percent. And I think that they all thought, the establishment thought, "Uh uh-oh, that's dangerously close. So this year they didn't even put me in the polls. So I I can't get the name recognition when I'm not in the polls. Because what they would do is they would poll people and then they would report on the news, you know, internet, TV, and so forth. Well, we've got, you know, here, here are the results for Hillary Clinton, Trump, and then Gary Johnson. So, of course, people were going, wait a minute, there's somebody else, and then they would look them up. I haven't gotten that name recognition because they're afraid to put me in the polls. Yeah, a lot of people forget that you were the vice presidential nominee, I believe, back in 1996. So I you, sure was, yep. Yeah, and you're <laughs> the only woman, aren't you the only woman in history to ever be on the ballot in all 50 states, not just once, but twice in 96 and now again this year. That's quite an achievement. Yep, that's my new claim to fame. And I'd like to point out that a libertarian woman was the first woman to ever get an electoral college vote, and that was back in 1972, uh, long before Sarah Palin and Geraldine Ferraro. Well, you are, I believe, a professor at Clemson University. Give us a little bit of your background uh, so that the listeners understand just how highly qualified you are. Well, my boss would want me to say senior lecturer, although the students don't know the difference. But um, (laughs) I've got a Ph.D. in industrial organizational psychology, and I have had my own businesses. I've been a small business owner, so I know the challenges of people out there. I understand how hard it is to get a business started, all the paperwork, and it it takes money (laughs) with all the lawyers and so forth. And that's what we've been talking about is if you're disadvantaged, if you're a minority or poor or uh, just don't have a lot of connections, you can't just easily start a business out of your home and get somewhere. What are your issues? I mean, what are the libertarians running on this year? aside from you're not Donald Trump or Joe Biden? (laughs) Well, my two main issues are health care and bringing the troops home. We need to turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral, and protect our shores and not the 150 different countries we're in around the world. Also, health care is a life or death situation. And if there's one message I could get to, sorry, I guess you hear that, the uh, airport PA. If there's one message I could get to every voter out there, it's that we do not have a free market system. We keep hearing politicians say, well, the free market's not working, so we need a single payer. That's not the case. In fact, when I hear them say, when they say we need Medicare for all, what I'm hearing them say is we need VA hospital for all. What about top down? Yeah. And top down monopolies like that just do not work. What about the national debt? Are you concerned about that as a party and as a candidate? Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned my 1996 run. You know, I remember back in 1996 saying that, well, we're, um, you know, we've got five trillion in debt. How are we ever going to get out of it? I mean, now $5 trillion seems like, you know, quaint compared to we're at five times that now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where have you gone in your campaign? Are you coming to Michigan at any time soon? 
Uh, we were in Detroit a few weeks back. I'm not sure if we're headed back that way or not. What we're doing is we're concentrating on the states that need ballot access. So we will be up in the area. I know we're going to Minnesota and Ohio because there are states that every year or every election year, they need to go out and collect thousands of signatures. Sometimes they have to have lawsuits, which cost tens of thousands of dollars. But if I can get to a certain percentage, and many states have 5% of that, then uh, we don't have to go through that. What about support from Gary Johnson and previous nominees, other people in the party? Are they giving you the help and cooperation as a Libertarian nominee that you need this year? Oh, yeah. Gary's been great. He uh, endorsed me right away and just a super nice guy. And, you know, I've got a lot of old timers working with me, people who've been in the party a long time. In fact, my campaign manager was national director and executive director in the 1990s. So we've got people who have been around a while. Now, what about what happened in Michigan last week with this so-called Wolverine Watchman group and their plot to kidnap the governor and maybe even overthrow state government? What's your reaction to that? Well, it's, of course, absurd. Of course, they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. However, I understand people's frustration. Uh, and I was happy when I saw people originally uh, storm the, uh, you know, when they drove around the state house when the lockdown was first getting underway. I thought, well, great. Americans haven't lost their individualism. The fact that we came to this country to be free. And what's ironic for me is. One of my grandfathers came over here from Sweden, and his family came here for, you know, freedom, land of the free, home of the brave. And yet we're all under house arrest while people in Sweden have been able to go to restaurants, go to schools, go shopping the entire time. What about the coronavirus pandemic in general and how it's been handled both at the federal and state level from what you've seen? Well, Trump made a big mistake by not getting rid of the FDA obstacles. There were dozens of testing kits that we could have used to find out who could go needed to stay home. Uh, that's what South Korea did, and they got ahead of the pandemic without any lockdowns. However, we're all under lockdown. Consequently, we lose tens of millions of jobs. And that is just egregious for the government to do. The states seem to have assumed a huge role in the entire battle against coronavirus compared to what I think maybe people's thoughts were about the role of the federal government. Is this a good thing or a bad thing that the states have been so much front and center in the fight against COVID-19? Well, but here's the thing. Trump stood on stage with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Fauci is telling everybody, no, you need to stay home, you need to wear a mask and all. So even if the president isn't, isn't creating the law, passing the law, he's still working, you know, he still has the bully pulpit to uh, lead the American people. And I think he led them wrong. So where are you bound for right now? I think you're getting ready to uh, fly out of South Carolina, where Clemson is located, uh, yes. to some other venue. Where? Oh, where are we going right now? Right. We are headed to Tampa, Florida, and then we're going to be visiting the villages, a uh, retirement community uh, northwest of Orlando. And then we're heading through Georgia and ending up in uh, Tennessee this time. We've been <laughs> we've really been hitting the campaign trail hard, sometimes on the bus. And by the way, I'm flying down to Tampa to join the bus. 
and we make on the bus we make anywhere from one to four stops on the bus. Wow. Uh, do you get any time at home in South Carolina? You are leaving there now, but I mean, is it pretty much almost seven days a week between now and November 3rd? Well, I'm actually still teaching a couple classes, and so uh, the few days I am home, I teach in person sometimes, and the other classes I'm teaching online. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a busy time for me, but this is what I signed up for, and I love it, and I'm just so grateful that I have the opportunity to go out and spread the message. And because I, I think it's really important that libertarians talk to voters about what's important to them, things like health care, things like the economy and education. Joe Jorgensen is the Libertarian nominee for President of the United States. We've been very fortunate to have her on the phone with us from South Carolina. Thank you so much, Dr. Joe Jorgensen. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Have a great day. Good luck on November 3rd. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. Bye. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned and we have on the line with us somebody who really knows what's going on in Michigan politics and government. It is Kyle Malin, and he is editor of the Michigan Information and Research Service newsletter, MERS, as everybody calls it. Kyle Malin, thanks for being our guest. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be on the show, Bill. Long-time listeners. First well, I really appreciate that. Uh, let me just ask you, uh, you originally, I guess, were from Byron Center, just south of Grand Rapids. Uh, you went to Michigan State University. I think then you fled Michigan for a while. You went to <laughs> places like uh, Boston and Arizona and Tennessee, but you came back about two decades ago, and uh you know, 20 years, you've had quite a ride. Let me just ask you, have you ever seen a year like this one in Michigan politics and no. government or just in general? Yeah, no, not at all. I, this has uh, certainly been uh, a roller coaster. And, you know, the, the COVID-19 thing alone has uh, created a, a very strange dynamic uh, in the process of elections, the elections themselves, how people are responding, how people are campaigning. I think I think that's been the most unique thing of all. I mean, it's just starting with campaigning and how you know people are scared to go door to door. How they go door to door is is very different. I mean, that's the bread and butter of elections, and they're just not doing it. And then from the technical side of things too. I mean, collecting petition signatures that's got thrown into court, and there's had to be adjustments made to that. And then you get into now the counting of ballots and whether the Secretary of State is going to be allowed to let local clerks accept mail-in ballots that come in after Election Day as long as they got the proper postmark. I mean, it, all these things are, are happening, and it's it's just completely unique. Has there been any resolution yet of the court order by a judge that uh, ballots can be counted as late as like two weeks after the election? I mean, that's being challenged in court. What's going to happen on that? See, I don't know what's going to happen with that, because as of right now, and we're, we're, you know, we're recording this here on the 10 o'clock hour and on Friday, but there's actually court action that is expected on this very issue later today. Uh, so as of right now, local courts uh, have 14 days to take in these uh, ballots as long as they're postmarked by November 2 and count them up to 14 days after the election. 
So that is completely different than what we've ever seen before, which is, as you know, once you hit 8 o'clock on Election Day, that's it. And if you don't have your ballot into the hot hand of uh, the clerk or you're in line to vote, you have to be in line uh, by 8 o'clock, you know, you're out of luck. You don't get a chance to vote. So this is a, a seismic change and uh, one that I know Democrats are very excited about, but one I don't think the final script has been written on that yet. Um, there are, like I said, other court action that's going to take place. So folks are going to have to stay tuned. And if you can't vote on Election Day, you might as well just get your ballot in early, because if you're waiting to the last minute, uh, you may not get your ballot in. I talked earlier in the program about what I'm seeing develop as a kind of two-track system of government's governance here in Michigan. On the one hand, you're seeing signs, I think, for the first time after 21 months of Gretchen Whitmer in office and this particular legislature that there is working together. I mean, they passed a budget that nobody expected uh, just three weeks ago for 2021. And now this week, there was cooperation on a lot of bills to put into effect in statutory form what was earlier in the governor's executive orders, which have now been ruled unconstitutional. So we have that going on positively, people working together But then on the other hand, Kyle, there's still all this acrimony going on behind the scenes between Gretchen Whitmer and the legislative leaders and a lot of insults being hurled back and forth. Uh, Where are we going from now on, in your opinion? Well, I think the legislature and the governor have worked out an arrangement that seems to be working in which their staffs are communicating and getting the heavy lifting done. The actual speaker and majority leader and the governor are not meeting in the same room to hammer out these details as we've been used to seeing in the past. I mean, how how this has always worked before, Bill, is, uh, and and you know this, but for our listeners' benefit, is that, you know, staffs get together and they kind of get the parameters of what, what the issues are on the table. And then the big guns come into the room, you know, the leader and the speaker and the, and the governor come in, and they hammer out the final details. They cut the final deal. Well, that's not happening now. What's happening <laughs> now is the staff is going in, and the staff has is, is got certain parameters they're operating under, and maybe they're communicating with each other behind the scenes or communicating with the governor or the leaders or whatever, but they're the ones cutting the deal. They're not the ones. It's just a completely different situation. They've changed into kind of more of a, you know, I think they realize that they have to do what they're doing to get the work of the people done, and they don't want the leaders in the room to do it because they're afraid (laughs) of something blowing up. Well, on the other hand, the leaders, the governor and the two legislative leaders, they have to own what these staffs come up with. I mean, they're the ones who are going to have to be the face of whatever agreement there is. So they've got to put their imprimatur on it at some point, don't they? Yeah. Oh, they do. And and I'm sure and I'm I'm. I'm 100 percent sure that these staff people are in constant communication with the leaders. Are you okay with this? Are you okay with that? You know, texting or whatever, you know, calling, you know, and and they go into these meetings with, you know, marching orders. Okay, I I will agree to this. I won't agree to that. Um, You know, this is a third rail, but, you know, we can bend on that. So they, they have their parameters. These staff have their parameters as they go in. But see, these this is but the benefit to what's going on here is that it's completely professional. I mean, there is no politics involved with these staff people at all. So, you know, 
there's no, um, you know, there's no egos. I mean, the egos are checked at the door, and so they're actually able to get things done. So, you know, it's a positive that we are seeing that there's a relationship that has been established that is working. It's just, it's just a very odd one. What about firearms in the Capitol? Obviously, that became a big issue last spring when there were these demonstrations at the Capitol and you had people swarming into the Capitol, open carry with not only firearms, but ammunition. And there was a lot of outrage and concern and fear from legislators. And they demanded that there be a ban imposed on firearms in the Capitol. And it kind of went away as an issue a little bit, uh, percolating in the background for like three or four months. But now, with what happened last week and the plot to kidnap the governor and perhaps overthrow state government, it's come back to the fore again. So what's going to happen? Well, I think what's going to happen is, is there isn't going to be a ban on firearms in the Capitol unless you have um, a majority on the Capitol Commission uh, be appointed by Democrats. Uh, otherwise, I just don't see it happening. Uh, the, the issue is, is that the, the NRA and the gun lobby has such a powerful influence on uh, the Republican leaders that uh, to put a, put a complete ban on the Capitol with firearms just isn't practical. Now, I do know that the leaders are very sensitive about concerns from their members uh, on the Democratic side about people wandering around the gallery with long guns. And I do see, and, and I, I know this because any time that there's been a rally since the April 30 incident with the, that Liberty protest where people were around the, the gallery with guns, since then, any time there's been a protest or any kind of gathering where the leaders knew that there was going to be guns up at the Capitol, they basically canceled session. So they are very sensitive to this. They, they don't want the long guns up there, but they don't want to make a policy about it quite yet. So if there is any kind of common ground that's reached, I don't believe that there's going to be metal detectors, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a policy that if you're going to carry in the gallery, it's got to be concealed. And maybe even if you're going to be in the Capitol, if you're going to be around, you can carry concealed, but leave your, leave your long guns you know, outside so that you're not intimidating people. Let's say the Democrats seize control of the state house on November 3rd. Will that change the composition of the Capitol Commission and give the Democrats an extra vote that would enable them to put in place what you just described? Uh, I think what happens then is I think we're going to have a 3-3 deadlock. Uh, right now, I think it's a 4-2 advantage for Republicans, and that would create a 3-3 deadlock. So I still don't think you're going to get I don't think you're going to get any any movement. I, again, it would have to be some kind of compromise like what I just described. What about the executive orders being declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court that the governor has been issuing? Now you've got the Unlock Michigan petitions, and you've also got a bill moving through the legislature which would abolish the 1945 Riot Act. All these things happening at once. What's likely to unfold on that front? Well, I don't think, I think eventually the voters are going to get a chance to decide on whether we should just pitch the whole 45 Riot Act. Since the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional, it really doesn't have a heck of a lot of effect anyway. So I don't, I don't think that that, you know, because in all likelihood, the Democrats are probably going to get majority of the House, and they're not going to support it once they get the petition in front of them. So it would probably go on the ballot in 2022. But functionally, I don't think it really matters much because by 2022, 
Uh, this pandemic should be pretty much uh, over by the time we vote again in November of 2022. At least we would hope so. So I, I think that that I think the whole unlock Michigan thing kind of peters away as a big issue. The Supreme Court's already ruled, and we all have to function under that new reality. And I don't I, I don't under, I don't see what could change that would uh, give the governor back those powers. I just I don't see what could happen. By the way, MERS. Michigan Information Research Service, of which your editor, you had your 10th anniversary celebration on air, I think, this week. Uh, <laughs> you've been there uh, for a decade. So how do you look at this program? How do you, how many listeners do you think you have for that? Yeah, so this is this was our 10-year anniversary for our MERS Monday podcast. Uh, we started back in 2010. There's a story behind how that all got started. If you got time, I'll tell you. But it's, uh, it's been a great run. We've really enjoyed it. Every week we put up a podcast. Uh, if one day ended up being a, a holiday, we just do it ahead of time. But we've done one every Monday since uh, 2010, October 2010. We were really excited. Emily Lawler, one of our old staff writers, and now with M Live, she, she uh, makes cookies uh, on the side, kind of a side <laughs> business. She made us cookies, and we all enjoyed them. It was great. Oh, wow. I, I listened to it. It was great. You got a great podcast. Congratulations on a 10-year run, and I know you're going to continue far into the future. Kyle Malin, editor of MERS, thank you for being our guest on The Political Insider. Hey, it was my pleasure. Anytime, Bill. We'll be back next week with still more 